Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking about digital forensics in the cloud today. I'm talking with Rob Lee. He's the Curriculum Lead for Digital Forensics Training at Sands Institute. Rob, it's a pleasure to talk with you again. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Why don't you update us, Rob, on what your current projects are, please? Well, it's, uh, I'm actually in the process of uh, re-releasing uh, the uh, SANS uh, Institute's uh, forensics, uh, forensics Investigative Toolkit called SIFT uh, 2.1. Um, it's a, a, a compendium of uh, digital forensics uh, capabilities, open source and freeware tools, into a single platform uh, that a lot of individuals have become to rely on um, uh, almost near as much as in case or FTK from uh, access data and guidance software. So um, that's about to be released in the next uh, week, and I've uh, been doing the final touch-ups on that. And uh, as a part of that, I'm also doing a lot of research and development uh, surrounding timeline analysis, um, really trying to bring that up to much easier um, way to incorporate that into digital forensics investigations for the average investigator. Rob, we've spoken a number of times in the past about digital forensics. What do you see as some of the latest trends in the field? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting that the, in the digital forensics world, especially over the past week, um, there's been a lot of discussions over what happened at the Casey Anthony trial, uh, especially considering uh, there was a uh, small movement in the digital forensics world. I don't think a lot of people picked up on it, but it basically was the um, – Analyst accuracy versus the tool accuracy, the uh, discussion between the uh, cashback tool as well as the net analysis tool, uh, basically, it's hinged on the fact whether uh, Casey Anthony did a search for chloroform 84 times or whether she only did it once. Uh, and what re- the result of that was the defense was correct that uh, there was only one search uh, that was accomplished on chloroform. Uh, so there's a lot of back and forth on, you know, who's, was it this analyst issue? Was this a, the misinterpretation of the data? Was it the tools problem? So there's a lot of discussions going on in the uh, industry right now regarding uh, tool accuracy versus analyst accuracy. So it's been quite uh, eye-opening. Rob, a topic we want to talk about today is forensics in the cloud. and It's a new area. What do you see as some of the key challenges here? Well, it's you said it's a new area, and you know I, I almost pull back there a little bit on that, especially when it comes to digital forensics. Uh, digital forensics investigators have, to a certain extent, have already been doing cloud forensics for many years now. They probably never even realized they were doing it, though. But whenever you're dealing with uh, webmail or if you're uh, doing investigations against a email server or remote email, most investigators are actually already doing, to a certain extent, cloud forensics. And I actually made a joke at the... Uh, SANS Digital Forensics Summit that occurred this past summer, I said, you know, everyone in here, if you've done an email case on webmail or remote email server, you could put uh, cloud forensics down on your resume. Because to a certain extent, the challenge basically means that you're moving from traditional hard disk analysis, um, static, all the information self-contained, to where you're going to need to reach out uh, to these data storage areas and be able to pull the data down locally. Or, and on top of that, you would potentially need to examine the local data store on that same hard drive to see how someone accessed a remote uh, cloud data store. You know, most of this is browser-based and you know, for, for a lot of the capabilities that are out there. So you're looking for the artifacts that would point you to where these data storage locations uh, potentially might be. So there's some challenges in it, but most uh, investigators may not have realized that some of the solutions that they have already put together for doing webmail investigations or remote uh, email servers are very similar to some of the challenges that they're going to find when you start moving toward 
more data, you know, local data, you know, files and, um, you know, chats and, you know, uh, streaming data to be able to uh, examine that as well locally. Well, you make a good point, Rod, because investigators certainly have been in the cloud. I think what's different now is you've got a lot more information from potential yes. clients and, and sources that you're investigating that's in the cloud. I, I totally agree with that. So how do you overcome some of these challenges? You've got more data there than ever before, and you've got the, the challenges you've outlined. What are the ways that our investigators are getting over these hurdles? It's, it's a good question. The first one is it's a, it's a slight mindset shift that needs to occur, is that uh, for many years analysts have felt that the only way to do perfect forensics is you have to have access to the original hard drive. And in this instance, you're not going to be able to say that it's going to be all-encompassing of the data from just that one system because of all the remote locations where the data is going to be stored. So I think there's going to be a reduction on the necessity to do the standard tag-and-bag, remove-the-hard-drive approach for cases that are involving uh, you know, mobile devices or even computer systems, tablets, uh, that have a major connection uh, into the cloud. So for an example... Um, you know, tablets like my iPad, for example, I have, you know, multiple different uh, locations on it from Dropbox to iDisk to web-based email that it's connected to. Those artifacts are actually, there's, you know, the, what I'm doing to access those are still potentially being stored on that tablet. But when we start taking a look, how do we get to forensicate that uh, effectively? You're going to need to say, okay, we now know that Rob stores data on an iDisk. Now, if you're law enforcement, you'd say, okay, now we need to generate a lead to go grab that data. Now, if you're not law enforcement, you might be able to still locally examine those artifacts to be able to determine that at least I had access to those artifacts remotely, even though you might not get access to them. Which brings up a second point. If you're the actual owner of the data remote, you know, remote storage locations, email, uh, disk storage, you know, whatever you're potentially uh, moving out there, um, and you're working through these cloud providers, what is your uh, terms of service that allows you to access the data? Um, what if you have a situation that you know has occurred in the past year when we're dealing with HB Gary and other situations where you have email archives uh, and you potentially need to access them quickly? What if the opposite is also true in the security world where you potentially need to worry about offloading that data as quickly as possible? You know, for example, um, most terms of service agreements so totally focus on availability. But what if something catastrophic happens, you know, such as a data breach, and you want to tell the cloud provider, stop all access to my data now, take it offline? How? What is the response time for that? Um, and so, you know, you have both issues there for how do we have data accessibility so I could get to it for forensics. Then you also have the security concern is, you know, it's like stop the uh, flow of water in case of, you know, uh, a flood. Uh, how do we potentially cause that to occur at the quickest possible time? Uh, so it's it's a fascinating uh, amount of discussions that are currently going on out there in the industry, uh, both on the forensics as well as IT security side. Well, Rob, given this landscape, what kind of new skills do you find are required of forensics investigators? That's <laughs> um, This is a very difficult question because it's unlike where you've said you need to analyze a Windows operating system or, or you need to understand, you know, how mobile device architecture works. Uh, to a certain extent, you have to be even more of a jack of all trades to understand and stay abreast with all the new technologies that are out there. Um, if you see an artifact remotely on, you know, via a browser on a machine, you need to be able to have enough uh, wherewithal to be able to investigate what specifically does that mean 
and what is that data storage location. There may be cloud providers that are um, very, very small that no one knows about that uh, you, you're going to be the first one to investigate those artifacts. So I think to a certain extent the new skills are required are flexibility and a major capacity to learn on the fly because it just you can't point to a single area that says, focus on learning X. It's almost impossible at this point. I could say, you know, you almost need to be uh, skilled in mobile device, operating systems, network forensics, as well as the common hacking methodology in order for you to be able to even take a shot at it. But that's it's too much for a single individual to uh, to swallow initially. So I usually say you need to be flexible. You need to uh, basically be very comfortable learning on the fly. And um, as a result of that, that would probably grant you the greatest uh, latitude in doing these type of investigations. Rob, you made a good point up front referencing the Casey Anthony trial because certainly public instances like that make this profession a lot more visible. And so you've got people that are interested in this now that might not have been. What advice would you offer to someone that's looking to start or maybe shift their career into digital forensics today? I think the technology has become so complex and the science surrounding it that it's no longer something that someone can just easily pick up. I think that the amount of training and education that is necessitating uh, proper analysis is uh, needed. And the more that you could focus on computer science topics to understand programming, to understand uh, network-based technology, uh, mobile-based technology, uh, the better off that you're going to be. I think we're shifting away from that anyone with a little bit of training can do forensics, moving into, wow, this is hard. There's a major room for error here, and in order to do this accurately, and so uh, we're not um, uh, having issues as a profession or industry, people not trusting us, I think we need a lot of individuals focusing in on the science behind it and proper analysis in order to do that. Um, and I'm not saying that we're, not, you know, we're in a transition right now where I think a lot of individuals are realizing this is much more difficult than they ever envisioned. Just based on the discussions I'm, I'm seeing going back and forth on a lot of the groups right now um, in the computer forensics world. So to a certain extent, if you're just breaking into it, um, if you're law enforcement and don't have much of a computer background, I'd say, you know, really consider going into your comp sci degree um, would greatly help out. If you already have a comp sci degree and you're looking at getting into the field, I would say you need to learn, you know, proper analysis techniques, you know, the gumshoe type things, you know, the uh, lead analysis and be able to uh, be able to piece together different pieces of artifacts and to tell the effective story of what actually happened based in fact on the machine. Rob, as always, it's great insight. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. Uh, thank you for having me here again. I really appreciate it. We've been discussing digital forensics. I've been talking with Rob Lee. He's the curriculum lead for digital forensic training at Sands Institute. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.